This morning, we are starting a brand new series in chapter 3, which I have planned to have three to four studies in chapter 3, but it's a very interesting title, and I'm hoping by the end of this series, you will understand exactly what it means. So the series we have entitled this, Grace for Me, for You. And this is part one, beginning in chapter three, verse one, with point number one being grace for me. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And then you've probably seen your translation, a dash, dash. And we're going to pause there for a moment. Because I want to ask you this question before we get into the rest of our passage this morning. How many of you have ever been in a situation or in a position that you had to do something that you didn't want to do? Is there anybody like that today? I hope you'd say, yeah, obviously, of course, we all do things that we don't want to do. Well, maybe in one of those particular instances, but you did it, might I ask you why? Why did you do it? Think about that. Did you do it because uh, it was the right thing to do? Did you do it because it was what God was calling you to do? Did you do that thing that you didn't want to do maybe because God had commanded you to do it? And so, out of your obedience, you did something that you didn't want to do. Here, when Paul says that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ... He's saying, really, and we're going to understand this more fully in this series, that he's been captured by the love of Christ to do what is right, to do what is beyond his own ability to perform because of God's grace. He will do that which he doesn't necessarily in his flesh desire to do because of Jesus in him. This is very important since Paul would be ministering to a group of people that he previously despised. Now, I don't know if you've ever despised anyone. Maybe because they were from the other side of the track or they didn't have the color skin that you have or whatever it might be. If that is you here today, then I'm hoping that the same grace that changed Paul's life would also change your life as well. But he, Paul, was raised in a culture where they despised the Gentiles. The Jews, I would even go as far to say, hated the Gentiles. They wouldn't associate with them or have any contact with them. They wouldn't even want to brush up against one because they would then be ceremonially unclean. But Paul, as a prisoner of Christ, was shackled with the love of Jesus and that changed his life. The love of Jesus changed his perspective on how he viewed other people. Now, I don't know about you, but it sure seems that there are a lot of people that need a perspective change in this world today. It changed his perspective on how he would treat those that were not like him. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 says. Paul wrote, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for Him who died for them and rose again. 
The love of Christ compels him. It's the love of Christ working through him after it's working in him. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that is working through you after He begins to work in you. It's the power of Jesus that is strengthening you. In the Greek, that word compels from 2 Corinthians 5.14. This is a very interesting translation. It means to hold together lest it fall to pieces. Hold together lest it falls to pieces. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that personally absolutely true. How many times, and I think about it, I've been able to draw upon the love of Christ in a given situation and have that love hold me together. How about you? Maybe when we feel out of our depth or past our limit, the love of Christ compels us. When I'm discouraged, maybe because of a failure, The love of Christ reminds us that I am forgiven when I'm feeling weak. I've seen my limitations. I've run headfirst into that proverbial brick wall. I find that it's the love of Christ that strengthens me. When we feel like, and I don't know if you ever have, felt like you wanted to just give somebody a piece of your mind. You want to lose it on someone. Maybe it's over the phone and you can hear this barrage coming at your friend, you know, over the phone and they're putting the phone like way out here and you're like, just give me the phone, I'll tell them. Or maybe somebody's pushed your buttons too many times and, 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 and now all of a sudden you're like, that's it. Put you on blast right now. I'll tell you what's up. But then the love of, of Christ constrains us with the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. Because if Jesus paid the price for all sin, then the price for all sin's been paid, and then because Jesus died, that we might live, not only just have an existence, but that we should live no longer for ourselves, but for Jesus who died for us, which means if I'm living for Christ, then I'm going to be living for others. Paul no longer lived for himself, but was a prisoner of Christ. He was bound by the bonds of love. He was held captive by that love as a prisoner of Jesus. That's why we're pausing here in verse 1 because it's so important to understand that when you're held captive by the love of Christ, you can't help but love others and treat them the way that Christ treated you. In Colossians 3, Verses 12 through 14, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, means you're the church, you've been chosen by the Lord, You're holy and beloved. Put on tender mercies. He tells the Christians, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. He says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against the other, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the, listen, bond of perfection. What overcomes racism in our world today? And I know I've talked about this because it's been smacking us in the face. On the news, we see it. Nothing but the love of Jesus. That's it. How do we know this to be true? Because there is precedent. 
The love of Jesus changed Paul's life and it changed the members of the church as well. And they wouldn't be members of the church unless they had faith in Jesus. And so the irony, as well as the miraculous work that took place in Paul's life, is that he, as a Jew, places his faith in Jesus, and so he is what we would consider a Messianic Jew, and now is held captive by the love of Jesus. And it is the same love that compelled him to serve beyond his limitations. To serve beyond how he was raised. Culture and upbringing are very powerful factors in how somebody lives their life. The love of Christ pushed him beyond his own social norms and his own social context. It carried him beyond how he was even conditioned to treat Gentiles, others outside his race, his faith. So, irony, so the miraculous is that Jew, that a Jew, Paul, a man who was a Pharisee that adhered to every aspect of the law of Moses would be the very man sent to the Gentiles. This would be the kind of thing where you would respond, Lord, you have to be kidding me right now. I am not naturally inclined to like that person. I am not naturally inclined to connect with people from that region. Lord, I am the furthest thing from being a contemporary of that people group. I am the opposite of that group of people. Lord, that's not even who I am. Lord, that's someone else's job. Look at all these people over there. They would fit the bill way, way better than me. Lord, what are you doing? You have to be joking. And we might read this, and I don't know if we understand the level of irony. And even furthermore, the mighty working power of God to change a person's life by His grace through faith in Jesus. So he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ for you. In verse 2, it says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Now we can read over this real quickly and be like, okay, great, no, but do we understand like what is actually happening here? Point number one, remember, was grace for me. And God works in the individual by the power of the Holy Spirit with His grace. And in verse two, it says dispensation, and some of you might be wondering what exactly does that mean? It just means a stewardship or a responsibility. Have you heard of the responsibility of the grace of God that was given to me for you? Have you heard of the stewardship of the grace of God that was given to me for you? What a tremendous responsibility to be a steward of the grace of God towards someone else. To show God's grace to someone else. You know, being gracious to someone that you don't like or that may have wronged you can only be accomplished by the love of God working through you. I don't want to be gracious to them. 
Maybe sometimes we feel more like being the steward of the wrath of God. Not the grace of God. You know, Lord, I feel like you've given me a stewardship of divvying out judgments to people. Maybe others already feel that you're that way already. Paul said that God, through the love of Christ working in him, was given grace for those that he previously had nothing to do with by choice. He says that because of his connection, his, 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 his shackles to Christ and the love that he is connected to in Jesus and then the grace that Jesus that has been given to him, that God has shown him, he is now given this responsibility and stewardship to show that same grace to other people that he previously despised, hated, that were marginalized, that were outcasts, that he'd have nothing to do with. Paul says that very thing. And because of the nature of grace, he not only had love for them, but wanted to bless them with the same grace that he had received himself. That is mind-boggling. You know, I may have to love you, but I don't have to like you, Christians have said. I know God commands me to love you, but I don't have to like you. That is not a work of God's grace in your life, and that's not a work of God's grace through your life. So God will first give grace to us that we like that we rejoice in. Lord, thank you for your grace. I am so unworthy, Lord. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Thank you, Lord, for providing for me. Thank you, Lord, for this relationship that I have with you. Thank you, Lord, that my sins are remembered no more. Lord, as far as the east is from the west, so have you separated my sins from me. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that I'm a new creation in Christ. Lord, thank you that I have new opportunities because your mercies are new every single morning. Thank you, God, that I've blown it time and time again, but then your grace has covered a multitude of sins, mine particularly. Lord, thank you for all of your grace for me. Hmm. Isn't that nice? But then he goes on in verse 3 and says how that by the revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Huh. See, now Paul, being the apostle to the Gentiles, that wasn't some mere thing because up until the day of Pentecost, you remember, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, there the church was gathered together. We read about it in the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they began speaking in tongues and, you know, the Holy Spirit came upon them as flames of fire over their head. And people from different backgrounds and nations and tribes and languages were praising the name of God and the Spirit. Before that time, it was a mystery as to how God would save the Gentiles. So when you just read those words in verses 3, 4, and 5, and you're wondering about the mystery, what's the mystery, what mystery, what, what revelation, what are you talking about? That the people known as the people of God in the Jewish community 
the people of Israel and Judah. The mystery was, how in the world would God save Gentiles? For centuries, many wondered how God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled, where God said to Abraham, if you're wondering where that is, it's Genesis 12, verse 3, and the Lord says to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you, I will curse him who curses you, but then here's the real key, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Lord, if salvation is only for the Jews and the Gentiles are used as fodder for the fires of hell, then Lord, how will all the nations and families of the world be blessed? All the families of the earth shall be blessed? Even the Gentile families? What a mystery. Man, beats me how that one's going to work itself out. Because we like the grace for us. Grace for me. Yes, Lord, keep it coming. I will receive your grace. Thank you. But what happens when it's grace for me, for you? Which is point number two. Point number one is grace for me. Lord, yes, I rejoice in it. But what about what Paul's saying here when God gives him grace for somebody else selfishly even as Christians I'll receive grace and that's where it will stop Lord you give me grace and then there's a cap on this end and so it just right here and it stops right here every time with me that's grace Lord I like grace for me but what about what Paul says God's given me grace grace for me for you the Gentiles See, the stewardship of the grace of God had given Paul a very unpopular ministry with the Jews. This actually caused him many, many problems. Sometimes people, I found, will not be satisfied unless you hate someone as much as they do. Or unless you share the same viewpoint as they have. Someone that is filled with the love of Christ is not looking for evil in someone. And they're not quick to believe something bad that is said about someone else. Grace for me, for you. In 1 Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter, the agape love chapter, you hear it read at every single wedding nearly. It describes the supernatural love of God and it says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The first thing we see there in this description of love is love suffers long and is kind. It means that you are patient in bearing with the offenses and injuries of others. And that you're slow and you're mild in avenging and you're slow to anger. Listen, the Gentile people were cast off. They persecuted the Jews throughout history. Whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and even in context, the Romans of of his day. They persecuted the Jewish people. How in the world would I show them love? 
Because it's very difficult to suffer long with those that offend you or hurt you. But to be patient with those that have done you wrong is an act of love by God's grace for you, for them. Typically, when someone gets off track, we can be swift to set them straight. We can be quick to avenge ourselves. I mean, we love the idea of God's long-suffering as it's written in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We like that for us, God's grace for me. And then all too often we'll grab people by the throat and tell them, pay us what you owe. As Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 18. God gives me grace. And then God gives grace to me for you. Next we see love is kind. The person that is filled with the love of Jesus will utilize kindness generously. They'll be nice to people. Courteous, polite, pleasant, friendly. That's how Christians are to show themselves as Christians. But next it says, love does not envy. Envy is a very terrible thing and it even affects people in the church. It's forbidden. Did you know that? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Envy can bring such pain to the church. It can bring such pain to a person's life, especially, I think, with Facebook. And you hear me talk about this periodically. Instagram, where there before you is displayed the highlight reels of other people's lives. It's the fuel for the fire of being envy. Someone goes on a vacation. Why am I not on vacation? Someone gets a new car. Why do I only have a Razor scooter? Someone gets married. How are they getting married before I'm getting married? See, love does not envy other people. Love does not parade itself. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 3 through 4, when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. See, love doesn't need you to notice its actions, nor does it need to flaunt its good deeds for everyone to see. Love does loving things because it loves to do them regardless of who is paying attention or even if someone says thank you. Love isn't about drawing one uh, attention to oneself, but rather de- decreasing so someone else might increase. Love's not prideful. Someone that's truly loving is not going to be consumed with pride and argument. They're not going to become stubborn. They're not going to hold fast to certain things just because it's for argument's sake. They're not going to feel offended in certain respects because they're not prideful. Agape love is not puffed up with one's self. We talked about this in our study in the book of Daniel in house groups last week, and I think we may have even used this verse, but Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before a destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So a person that's filled with the grace of God is going to be filled with the love of God and is not going to think of himself higher than he ought to think. 
Because humility is a hallmark of agape love. Love is not rude. To be rude is unbecoming for the follower of Jesus. The Bible says speak the truth in love, not speak the truth in rudeness. And there's a vast difference between the two. Often we can find ourselves speaking in a way where our speech is not seasoned with grace, but rather sharpened with rudeness. Love is not selfish. I've known some very unselfish people. I think of Ruth, and I don't want to steal too many of her rewards in heaven. We would joke around when I was on staff at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa where if you complimented someone, one of us would go, and it meant there goes your reward in heaven. Gone. But we know people that are loving and they're unselfish. Someone that has love is not content until others' needs are met. This is particularly important in the life of Paul in dealing with people that he didn't like in the flesh. Love is not provoked. And there are certain things that certain people can do to provoke us to anger. Maybe it's a phrase that somebody might use, such as, hey, make me. Or maybe it's some button that someone knows what to press in your life and they press it. If I'm walking in the Spirit and the supernatural love of God is flowing through me towards those that are even extremely annoying, it will not arouse my anger. Love thinks no evil. We already said, as far as the East is from the West... God's forgiven me of my sin. God's grace for me. I love it. No one likes their past mistakes thrown in their face. And that's one particular nice thing about finding forgiveness of your sins is that your wrongdoings are remembered no more. What if Paul, when dealing with the Gentiles, what if he dealt with Romans? He dealt with centurions? He dealt with the military? He dealt with uh, governors. He dealt with men in, in politics. He dealt with people that were evil men. That he had every right to despise and hate. They mistreated him. They mistreated his countrymen. But the love of Christ compelled him. It was grace for him and then grace through him. It was grace for me and grace for you. David Guzik puts it this way. And I quote, love does not store up the memory of any wrong it has received. Love will put away the hurts of the past instead of clinging to them. End of quote. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Because of the grace that God has given me, I don't rejoice when somebody that I don't like has a calamity befall them. I can tell you in my own life, in high school, and even in college, I struggled with bitterness terribly and unforgiveness. And it consumed me. That you would rejoice when something bad happened to somebody else. They finally got what was coming to them. And secretly, you're like, <laughs> or whatever it might be, you know? Love doesn't do that. In Proverbs 24, 17 and 18, it says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Love doesn't want to stick it to them. God's grace for me, for you. Now, I wasn't just joking when I said that the Gentiles were considered as fodder for the fires of hell. They truly believe that. 
That was his upbringing. It was built in. You don't like this people group. We see that today. It's not anything new. But the same thing that changed Paul back then is the same thing that changes us today. Paul was bound to Christ. And through that bond of grace, he was, listen to this, bound to the Gentiles. So whether you like it or not, because of God's grace in you, you are bound to those that you may not like. That's when your flesh goes, oh, oh, no. No, there is no way. There is no, uh, no way. There is no possible way. No, no, listen, we're not sugarcoating. We don't sugarcoat anything. We're not going to sugarcoat this either. Because this applies to all of us. God's grace for me, God's grace for me, for you. Hmm. Paul was often persecuted by the Jews when they heard about God's will for the Gentiles to be saved from their sins. And as dangerous of a calling that Paul had, he saw himself as someone who had received a dispensation, which means what? Remember, a stewardship or a responsibility. It wasn't something that originated from him. Quite frankly, out of his own mouth, Paul would say, inside me and my flesh dwells no good thing. So do you think God's grace for somebody that's considered an enemy would originate from the worst part of who we are as human beings? I think not. Paul was a Jew of the Jews. He hated Christians and he hated Gentiles. You don't remember that? This is the same man. He persecuted Christians, threw them in jail, held the coats of those who stoned Stephen with rocks until he was dead. He was the one that hated Gentiles. He was the one that isolated himself from all that was around him except for his circle of people, his friends, his countrymen. And now he's called to help Gentiles become Christians that they might be saved. This is so fascinating to me. You hate Gentiles and you hate Christians. And now you're going to call Gentiles to become Christians so that they can be saved. All because of God's grace for me, for you. Man, won't you admit that often the Lord has a real sense of humor when it comes to the irony of our calling? Who has God given grace in your life for? See, following Jesus is world-shattering. It takes really the world and turns it upside down or probably rather right side up. As a follower of Jesus, God has given us grace towards others. The Jews despised the Gentiles. They referred to them as dogs. Not what's up dog, but dogs. So when we look at the issues of one people group hating the other in our own country, this is the same situation for Paul, and he was smack dab in the middle of it. How in the world can two groups of people that can't stand each other become family, fellow members, and citizens of the kingdom of God? 
You've been asking that question? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that is the mystery that Paul is referring to here in chapter 3. This wasn't made known in times past. As it says, it was not made known, but now it has been revealed by the Holy Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. The mystery of how the Lord would take two diverse groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, and through faith in one Son of God, Jesus Christ, bring them together as family. Forgive the Gentiles of their sins. For the Jews, it would be, why would the Lord forgive the Gentiles of their sins? They're evil. Maybe we would wonder the same thing, Lord. Why would you forgive them of their sins? Well, the same God that forgave you of your sins is also the same God that will forgive them of their sins if they so choose to put their faith in Jesus. Lord, but I like grace for me. I don't know about this grace for me for you. And so Paul, writing to a Gentile church, it was so vitally important to Paul for the Jews to understand, by grace you've been saved through faith. Because the Jew prided himself on his own works gaining him righteousness. But then by bringing both Jews and the Gentiles to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, by bringing them both together, that would be the way of overcoming the animosity that these two people groups had towards each other. And... It's the same today. The only way that our world, that our country, will overcome the gaping division that we see is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. In heaven, there are going to be people from all tribes, all tongues, and all nations. And as hard as it is to probably hear this, and from different political parties. That's why we continue to pray, Lord, on earth, even as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that your will would be done in the United States of America, even as it is in heaven. So what is the mystery? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the Gospel. Verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. So those outside and those inside were brought into one family through the Gospel of Jesus. Paul was called to minister to those outside of his community, outside his circle of friends. Paul was called to minister to those outside his comfort zone. And he was able to do so because of the grace that God gave him. There was grace for him and grace for others. And the two met together in Christ. People that hate each other can become loving family loving family. I know this is such a downplay of this particular point, but I remember I had a friend and he ended up marrying this woman that for years they hated each other. They couldn't stand each other before they got married. They, they, they rubbed each other the wrong way. They, they just didn't like each other and they were both very outspoken in how they didn't like each other. But then something happened. They got married. 
Two beautiful little girls in ministry, serving the Lord together. Something happened. The Lord changed their hearts, became a loving family. We might think that that type of power working in Paul was unique to him and his situation. Well, the same power giving Paul grace and helping him show that same grace to others is the same power of the Holy Spirit that is working in the church today. That means you, me. We receive grace from God, which is grace for us, grace for others. It's God's power working through grace. Paul said it was his responsibility to show grace. It was his stewardship to show grace. You show it to your family. You show it to your friends, your your acquaintances. You show it to strangers. And you show it to your enemies. There's forgiveness from God for you. And there needs to be be forgiveness from you for others. One of the greatest ministries in all the church and all of the church, the history of the church, was worked through the life of a man that allowed God's power to work through him. This power that worked through Paul, as he was a prisoner of Christ, as he was shackled to the love of Jesus, as he was given this responsibility and stewardship of God's grace, grace for me and grace for you, it transcended his cultural upbringing. It transcended his personal feelings. It transcended what he believed others deserved or were entitled to. And I'd like to just in closing read three select verses from our passage, verses 1, 2, and 7. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the responsibility, the stewardship, the dispensation, this is verse 2, of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. That's what we need. That's what we desire. God's grace for me, that's fantastic but we cannot forget that there is also God's grace for me, for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this place where we can open up the Holy Scriptures. We can read them. We can study them. We can ask for wisdom from them, and we can apply them to our lives. Lord, today I ask that you would please give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say. Lord, the subject matter that we talked to is sim- uh, talked about today, and as simply as it was laid out by Paul, Lord, we can't help but underline the mighty working, transformational power of the Holy Spirit that takes place in the life of the man or the woman that is connected to Jesus. And so, Father, we do pray for your grace to be upon us. I ask for your grace for me because I need it. I ask for your grace, Lord, for those that are here, those that are listening, those that are watching because they need it. And then, Lord, as stretching, as challenging, as uncomfortable as it may be, I pray that we would also have 
your grace for them. Whoever they may be, may we be able to say, as Paul said, God's grace for me, for you. And Lord, we can only be in that place by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, I ask God that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit today. I ask that you would encourage us, that you would lift us up, that you would help us to grow in this area, that you'd help us to be strong in you, that you would, Lord, even free us from any things that we've held on to. Lord, anything that has happened to us in our past, maybe it was a long time ago, Lord, and we've carried maybe resentment or anger or unforgiveness, whatever it might be, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be able to love even those, Lord, that have wronged us. Thank you that you have loved us when we have wronged you. And so, Lord, we praise you that when we ask for help, that you give it to us. When we ask for wisdom, you reveal wisdom. When we ask for strength, you give us strength. We thank you, Lord, that it's the love of Christ that compels us, constrains us, holds us together lest we fall to pieces. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you. And we ask for your blessings now in Jesus' name. We all say, Amen.